gonna be off the hook! PRN Alumni Foundation presents the 2018 Benefit Concert featuring the legendary Maceo Parker. Did you hear what I said? Live performance by legendary Maceo Parker with special guest Candy Dolfer at the award-winning Aria Event Center, 105 North 1st Street, downtown Minneapolis. All the hits and more. We're gonna really crank it up. It all kicks off Thursday, October 11th. Live performance by legendary Maceo Parker. Tickets available at PRNAlumni.org. PRNAlumni.org. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Podcast Juice. My name is Michael Dean. You're listening to the Prince Podcast. And today we've got a very special one for you. You've got a round table of people to uh, join us today to talk about Prince. And let me just start off by saying thank you to all of our Patreon people who have supported us throughout this time. Can't t- uh, thank you enough and really appreciate you guys sticking with us. All right, let's get into things. So first of all, my compadre is here, Mr. Big Sexy and Sax. Sir, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well, Mike, on a nice overcast morning. Nice and relaxed. Looking forward to this. All right. Joining us today, first off, we have Mr. Sam Jennings. Sir, how are you? Doing good, Mike. How are you? I'm good, man. It's uh, been a while since you've been on the show, and yeah. but it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's even more a pleasure when I get to see you. Uh, Absolutely. But, yeah, man. Um, all right. And we'll get into like everybody's sort of titles and things of that nature, but a lot of people know who Sam is. Also joining us, Mr. Dave Hampton, live out in the fields. Sir, how are you? How you doing, man? How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, Dave. All right. We have, we have some first timers on the show, but I believe they have heard of the show before. And I'm just joking as I say that. First off, we have Miss Amy Carlton. Ma'am, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for being on. And let me have full disclosure. I met Amy through uh, an interview for uh, maybe a piece that would be coming out soon. But I do yeah. know that Amy okay. is a, a big Prince fan. Uh, so big we fan. Yeah, yeah. love and to have you on. Academic by trade, but um, lifelong Prince fan. So. All right. And also joining us, Mr. Mr. Jay Anta Jenkins. Sir, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. And, and hello to everyone else who was on the call uh, that I haven't met yet. Uh, excited to be here. And yes, longtime fan supporter of the show. Um, right. Really excited to be here. I'm down in or out in, depending on where you are, San Francisco and <laughs> Twin Peaks. And it is not an overcast day. It is actually a nice, beautiful 60 degree San Francisco day. OK, we love it. We love it. Um, and of course, my name is Michael Dean, and you are who you are, listeners, and we love you. Let's get in. So we want to talk about, today I was thinking, you know, talk about Prince, obviously, but to have it in the context of technology and the internet, internet and, you know, getting the people that I have uh, on the roundtable today to really sort of weigh in, and I'll tell you why, you know, I think their voice or their opinions are important. I'm going to start with Sam. You know, for those who don't know, Sam uh, worked with Prince for many years. Uh, he's an art director and webmaster uh, with Paisley Park and Prince. And, you know, Sam was the guy that was creating all of the websites, the, the uh, MPG Music Club. Uh, he's done a few album cover artwork. He's got a great uh, mural that is in Paisley Park. I know you've seen a lot of news 
footage and if you've been there you've seen that uh the mural wall with prince and his influences and who he has influenced uh and he's been a mainstay online i think i met sam through like just the chat rooms and things of that nature over the years and been seeing his work and i've always been amazed uh at his stuff i remember sam was the chicago nation sam? yeah yeah that that's was what good. it was yeah, man. I always was like, okay, I want to I learn it. HTML and be like that. <laughs> but um, so that's Sam. Um, Dave Hampton, of course, has been on the show many times. But Dave, uh, you know, former technical director at Paisley Park, has also worked with Herbie Hancock. Uh, he works with the Miles Davis uh, estate. And countless other artists out there. I was talking to Dave the other day. He's like, oh, Mike, I'm going to see Too Short. We'll do some work over there. So Dave is like the, the guy's go-to guy out there uh, when it comes to getting your studio together, on the road, and different things of that nature. He's also an author. Uh, and I would say, uh, you know, a mentor, you know, uh, somebody that I actually confide in and, and bounce things off of. Um, and then we have uh, Amy Carlton. Now, as she says, she is an uh, educator. Uh, Amy, uh, I'm looking at your, your bio. She's a lecturer, comparative yes. media studies at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a.k.a. MIT. That's all you really got to say right there. You'd be like, oh, okay. But, <laughs> but also, I know she has a deep love for Prince. And actually, sort of uh, inspired me to even want to talk about this because we were talking before. Uh, about technology and Amy asked me, you know, do you think that people uh, really give Prince his uh, respect or his due in terms of technology and some of the things that he, you know, did early on? And I started thinking about that. I was like, you know what, that's a very good question. And so that's sort of sparks what we're talking about today. And Jayanta, also another deep Prince fan, uh, we talked behind the scenes a couple times and that led me to look up this brother and I'm like, okay, he's one of these cats that I need to like get up under and study how they move. And because he's, you know, I, and I said I used to work at, uh, do stuff for Nike, Apple Beats by Dre. Now you're at Twitter. Um, but he's uh, you know, very much into marketing and, and brand awareness. I, I'm, I'm struggling for the words. So brother, you jump in and you tell me, but uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've basically built a, a career by um, being in the creative discipline of, of most ad agencies. And, and yes, uh, worked on Nike via Widen and Kennedy, which is up in the northwest near you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went from there to work at Shiat um, Day, that's done stuff for Apple. I worked on Gatorade there. And now I'm working directly for, um, for Twitter and I've been very closely involved with helping shaped their brand story over the last couple of years with um, some really wonderful people uh, in the in the tech world out here. All right. We love it. We love it. And then, of course, we have, you know, Big Sexy and Sack is a part of the show, uh, but you also can bring in that legal aspect to certain things uh, that we also need uh, as well. And then for me, I'm just, you know, the guy that just runs his mouth. So with that said, <laughs> I wanted to start off with this and this is i think it's somewhat sort of timely because of where we're at right now but you know early on prince was probably one of the original uh, artists or the first artists to do bundling 
right? Like uh, the Musicology album, which is what, 2004, sold that album in conjunction with the concert tickets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that propelled his album to, to huge sales. It also sort of uh, had sound scan and billboard, you know, sort of changed the rules a little bit and how that can be done. But now you see a lot of people are doing this. A lot of artists are bundling their music to be sold. Uh, I believe last year alone, I think 14 of the 38 albums that were number one on billboard were sold in that manner where they bundled the album with concert tickets. Um, and even today, you're seeing a, uh, a lot of discussion with the uh, Travis Scotts and the Nicki Minaj's out there. Sort of, you know, oh, well, he's this person's number one because they sold it with tickets and merch and things of that nature. But I wanted to ask you and, even, and start with Sam. Um, what was uh, what was what, in your opinion, was like some of the thoughts going into bundling a cd with the concert ticket like do you remember any of that conversation about that yeah so so i was definitely around during that time and you know the thing with with prince is that really i my impression was that the music was always what guided all of his choices it wasn't necessarily like this is going to make me the most money this is what's going to do this or that it was really about like how can i get music to as many people as possible so i think that was his primary motivation you know he was coming off he was coming off a really kind of high momentum with opening up the Grammys and then the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then doing a big deal with AEG to do this big tour, which was like his biggest tour in a long, long time. And so I think he thought, you know, I'm going to be reaching this really big audience. I just, I want to make sure that they have the new record. I want to make sure they have musicology, what I'm doing now. Because I know that, I know a lot of them are showing up to see Kiss and When Doves Cry and all that, and that's cool. But I still want them to walk away and have musicology in their pockets. I really think that was his prime motivator beyond anything of like, I need to get a number one spot Mm. or this is what's going to make me money. Or even like, this is going to change sound scan. Cause I I don't really think that was his main motivation in his decisions. It seems like, what do you, what do you think it is for Prince to sort of come with these out of the box sort of ideas though? Like I don't necessarily think of Prince as your, uh, you know, stereotypical uh, techno type guy, like, oh, I'm just going to disrupt things. But what is it that speaks to him where he does sort of cause, dis- you know, good disruption of the status quo in terms of the music industry was involved? Can I, can I say something, Mike? Certainly, go ahead. Yeah, this, this is Dave. Um, you know, having been with him during that time in the studio and talked and had other conversations, there's an aspect of him that was also very cunning when it came to his business of his music. And the reason why I say that is because some of the moves were specifically made because nobody did it and nobody questioned the system. Everybody, you know, he was directly going against things because someone said that this is the way everybody does it. So he's going to, he's, you know, the ultimate um, contrarian, you know. Mm-hmm. If everybody's going left, I'm going to go right. If everybody's doing that, I'm going to do this. And also to secure what was his, because in a business where he had almost lost what was his. So I kind of felt differently in that, having had conversations to say, hey, what, what made you do that? You know, and he was very exacting about it. 
you know, with, with uh, you know, as we talk, right? And uh, I just think it's, it, it was a myriad of things. Yes, he wanted the fans to have his music. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. But also, he was aware since the inception of what uh, he and Sam had created earlier of what happens when his fans try and get to him, that there are many obstacles put out, such as, you know, the ticket scalpers and things like that when they started doing the direct sales to, to his fan club. Um, all those things were decisions he made that, to me, were very chess-like in a way to always have the last say about his career, which is what any entertainer in longevity usually wants. They want they want to say about every aspect of what's going on. All right. I can also kind of hear some of, you know, that control, too, like to... To, yeah. to, to maintain control over his uh, stuff and even talking about you know so his music and getting it out there as you said to, to people you know I wanted to sort of get to to talk about you know streaming uh, and things of that nature so even from like the uh, early days of the music club and sort of like being you know I almost look at that now it's like that was like the early sort of a, a Netflix streaming but it was just for one particular artist right uh, mm -hmm. it was like a Spotify you see today but you know I was curious I was always curious back then in terms of scale like how would that work mm -hmm. if all Prince fans wanted to sign up for the music club does it become a certain point where you know there's so many people that are using up, I don't know, was it bandwidth to get this music? Was he even concerned to make money, or was it more, again, just another way to get the music out there? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, because in talking about what we did, you know, almost almost 20 years ago, it's, it is interesting that the limits on the technology that we had back then that, that I think a lot of people don't even remember anymore. But yeah, things like bandwidth and people on dial-up and how do you distribute songs and videos to them through a very limited internet connection and also we're talking about a worldwide audience so somebody in california has got a different connection than somebody in germany or poland or something like that so it, there were a lot of concerns like that and i think for you know for him his vision was was going way past that technology i mean i always, I always point to his 1994 film that he did uh interactive the beautiful experience where you know it was a person accessing all of his music through a computer, you know, this is 1994, way before any of that was possible. Um, you know, he just sort of had that vision of like, he just wanted to be that direct line to his fans in any way that he could. So a lot of it was kind of learning it, learning as we go and making adjustments and changes. And it was kind of on me to figure a lot of that out because, you know, obviously he didn't want to be bogged down in the mendacity of um, internet providers and, and bandwidth and understanding that, internet backbones going down. He didn't want to hear all that. He just wanted to know, like, there's people who want my music. Let's get it to them as much as possible. Um, so he didn't think about limits. He didn't think about, like, um, we, we can only do so much. He's like, we need to blow this up as big as we can, and <laughs> you need to figure out a way to do it. So <laughs> that was that was on me to kind of to figure that yeah. out. And it was definitely a learning curve, and we had to make a lot of changes along the way, and I think we got it smoothed out towards the end. But, uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of, lot of considerations. Was there any sort of model that you could look at, you know, they give you some guidance, or were you just sort of, you know, just at the seat of your pants – kind of moving with, with, from the reaction of the, you know, the users. 
Yeah, really, there wasn't any model at that time. I mean, this this even predates iTunes. So, like, as far as like a a model for selling downloads goes, it, it really wasn't anything going on. Certainly, nothing that was artist owned and controlled. That was a direct connection to the artist. So. It really was driven by the vision of Prince wanting to connect directly to his audience. I make a song on Tuesday. I want to sell it on Wednesday. I want to sell a concert ticket like immediately and make sure it goes to the right person. That was all that was guiding us. So uh, as far as like the hammer and nails of it, you know, we just had to figure that out. Yeah, it was also it was also the predecessor to any kind of activity before you even heard the word branding, right? Before branding was even a discussion objective it was one of the few brand associated brand driven experiences so it predates streaming if anything streaming modeled after it because it directly spoke to the select group of analytic that wanted his music and his music alone and now streaming is totally about analytics and 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 looking at all these choices and saying oh what you know what 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 is it that you like about this artist and what artist do you like and why? And all that, all this predates that. And, uh, you know, Sam, Sam, very modest, but I mean, the things that I observed, I was like, wow, this is, this is tremendous. Cause it's only been talked about. Cause you gotta remember coming from coming into this experience, I'm coming from a, a real high tech user experience and somebody like Herbie. So I had seen and talked to a lot of people about, the concepts people were thinking about, but mm -hmm. nobody was doing direct access like this. And, the, you know, we're still in the days of dial-up. <laughs> yeah. right. You know, we're still in the days of dial-up and just getting out of Prodigy. And some of those early, right. you know, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you think about it. Let me ask uh, Amy and Jayanta, why do you think that um, as we are now, you don't see very many artists sort of taking the initiative to start their own uh, streaming service per se. And, you know, not that say that's what Prince was calling it back then, but that's essentially what it was. It wasn't like him going to uh, another tech company or a corporation to start this, doing it himself. But is there a reason why we don't see more artist-driven initiatives today? Uh, obviously, you know, you have the Spotify's and, and these bigger brands. Right. I'm just kind of get you guys' opinion on it. I will start yeah, with I'll, I'm going to jump in here, um, and largely because the question of or the the consideration of Prince and technology, the relationship between Prince and technology, for me, started um, at the beginning of the spring semester this year. And I'll be quick, but this is sort of a funny anecdote. Um, I was teaching a a, a class um, full of computer science students at MIT, and as you might imagine, there very technologically savvy, um, especially the computer science students. And it was the first week of class and um, I had them do sort of an icebreaker exercise to get them talking a little bit and to get to know them as well. And um, a question I asked them was, um, to evaluate the different kinds of music streaming services available and to debate the trade-offs, the benefits and trade-offs 
not only from a social or an end user perspective, but from, you know, a, a technical perspective. And uh, one of the students ended up uh, staying after class because he wanted to ask me why on earth I had a subscription or paid for a subscription to Tidal. Um, and I took that as an opportunity to tell him, well, because, you know, Tidal at that time, back in February of this year, had sort of the largest collection of uh, print material available for streaming. And we started talking about prints and, you know, and he was like, what should I listen to? And so this became a, a discussion over the course of the, the semester. And he would always stay after class and was really interested in sort of how Prince had this strong relationship to technology very, very early on and quickly. And then I'll get your question and be quiet. Um, but uh, I, I started going back and, and Neil Dash has mentioned some of this as well. So I'm certainly not the first to observe it. But if you go back and watch the movie Graffiti Bridge, this is 1990 when this is released, and you see that there are two scenes in which Prince at the beginning and at the end, he's on um, a Mac. I think it's like a Mac SE um, computer. And he's using it not just as, you know, an end user, but he's using it to like you know, work on music and you see, you can, see, if you zoom in, you can see that he's working on Can't Stop the Ceiling I've Got. That's the, um, you know, what comes up on the, the screen there. And so I started thinking like, okay, Prince was really a vanguard using, a, you know, computer as a tool to compose, you know, we, we Michael and I, we talked about the, the CD-ROM, you know, which I had to bring home to my parents' PC to be able to get that to work, um, you know, and, and using, uh, you know, the various websites and, you know, as a way to distribute inf uh, music and to crowdfund information uh, or um, albums and so forth. And so you're question with like why don't artists today have start their own thing and I think really none there's not a singular artist I would argue that has the breadth of like a catalog and also of the, the breadth of, of generational fans su to mm. support to sustain it you know because I mean I, I'm of your vintage as I said when we talked Michael um, but there are you know Prince fans that are my parents' age and Prince fans that are younger, you know, and there are very few artists, I think, today. I mean, I'm that's I'm throwing that out there. That's a bold generalization, but um, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I didn't think about it in as, that aspect in terms of the catalog, right? So I guess I, you can only sort of say, well, of course, maybe a Stevie Wonder or, you know, some of these other legacy, I hate to use that word, but artists that have been around for generations have a body of work that would support a rollout like that. But it is interesting you brought up title. I think that is a very cool concept because at least on the surface, it is that it is a coalition or at least it was presented as a coalition of artists standing up, you know, I guess bringing yeah. their art to the table to say, we're going to put it over here. And of course, you know, Prince ended up joining into that as well. Uh, also asking around too, uh, now that we have uh, the release of Prince's 90s uh, albums and bodies of work are now being added to all the streaming services this past week or so. Uh, I'm curious what you guys' thoughts are on that. I wanted to go to uh, Jay too. I wanted you to chime in. And you can speak on anything you like, but I just want to throw that too. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to go back for a second on the Prince and sort of artists today and, and how... 
you know, Prince's approach to putting his music as a distribution model into the internet, you know, he definitely, as everyone has said, he was a leader in that. And I think, one, there's definitely the idea that he had um, the fan base, as Amy mentioned, and then some of the things that Sam and Dave mentioned as well. But I think also, I just want to talk a little bit about the aspect of Prince and technology that predates even maybe the, the internet. And you think about someone who used, you know, drum machine, the Lynn drum machine, and, and also synth sounds in a way that were so that was so futuristic, you know. Mm-hmm. And I always loved listening to the the synth sections of some of his earlier work. And I just think he always had a mindset that was always probably, you know, thinking that way and thinking futuristically. And I think as you know, the '90s rolled around and the thing that, that happened with Warner Brothers and distribution and not being able to release music the way he wanted to became perhaps a little bit of an impetus to really take on the internet in the way that he did. Now, you know, in terms of fast forwarding a little bit and thinking about the titles and and I'm with you, Amy, I was on title long before, um, you know, Apple and everyone else finally caught up and I was on title because of the Prince catalog. Um, You know, I think we can't leave out SoundCloud and how younger artists actually are embracing this approach to using, you know, the the digital age as a means to, for distribution for themselves. And they're probably, if we're talking larger artists like the Billy Joel's and whomever else's, they're they're probably heavily fortified by the record companies and don't feel the need to have to put themselves out there like that. And Prince, you know, wasn't wasn't that wasn't that uh, of that mindset. Um, so that's kind of my two cents on the whole thing. Yeah, I want to uh, follow up on that a little bit. Um, when we talk about legacy, I, I don't like that word either, artists as well, there are a few who have jumped out there and really embraced this type of model. For instance, uh, I just was on Neil Young's page recently, and he has made his entire catalog available for high-resolution download through him. Now, people can still get it through other locations, but Neil took those reins and did all of that himself. Um, Now, this may be a bit of a legal twist, but let me ask Dave and Sam, you know, with an artist like a Prince or a Miles Davis or, you know, Stevie or Ray Charles, something like that, when they have such high volumes of music, what or the, or the ways they would decide, okay, we're going to get this out first, follow up with that, then we go back and dig into the catalog. How can they manage it all and make it all accessible on their terms? Are you talking about it in, in the legacy uh, standpoint? I, I'm sorry you guys don't like using that term, but um, a legacy uh, release schedule is much is curated much differently than uh, the normal release schedule when you, when an artist is you know in the in the midst of their career. Okay, okay. Can you uh, explain which one? Which one do you mean? Which one? Which, no, which one do you mean? I mean the legacy I, just, stuff. I'll just say you know, I mean legacy stuff. Okay, so in the case of something like a Miles Davis situation, where the the material is co-owned by the family and Sony then there is a release schedule with approvals on both parties' behalf. So there could be 
Uh, currently, we're doing the rubber band sessions and a couple other things that we've released. And those things are, are pulled, curated, and then begin to be put in a package. And then they'll pick a release schedule. They'll pick any other things they want to do. They'll get whatever materials they want to get involved. And, and all of it has uh, the story attached. It, in fact, is from a live effort. It's from studio recordings that have never been heard. There'll always be development of how did this come to be. In the case of uh, repurposed recordings or, you know, standards. Uh, there's always reissues of things like Kind of Blue, since it is the greatest selling record of all time for, for several years, you know, for many years. Um, it's, it's done a whole different way because they have a whole different audience that they cater to with the fandom and the organized, you know, uh, people who who purchase that that kind of material. You got uh, a bunch of people who want to see re-released vinyl. So there's been a bunch of re-releases of vinyl, and there's been a, some remastering and, and those things. And you'll see those catalogs as well. And you'll also see the calendar in a legacy situation sometimes reflect different times and different events. Like uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, New York named the street where Miles' house was Miles Davis Way. And there was a release around the time of that happening. And then uh, other times there'll be releases around other things. Um, it, it just it just varies, but, uh, you know, it, it's usually done with some form. In the case of Miles, there's a lot of material, yes. And, and there's, there, there's enough happening where his material is still needs to be you know, he left us in 1991, and we're still trying to make sure that generations still know who he, who he was and what he was about. So it's very important that you keep telling the story. You know, we, we've been over this over and over, so I won't go over it, but this the same thing I, I always encourage in Prince's situation, that when you're going to do this and you're going to create a calendar and memorialize an artist over their lifespan year after year, you have to do it with some amount of, of accuracy. You know, and so it's very important when all these calls happen and these things that the Sam, the myself, other people are involved because everybody's crucial to the story if you're still alive and you're actually there because it's the difference between what somebody thinks and what was intended. You know, uh, the young lady just made a comment about uh, technology and print and, you know, he was using a Mac, but he will always wanted to record on analog tape. So even though that's an early movie and he was using it to portray a use of a tool, when it came to the demand that he wanted to record his material on, it was strictly an analog experience for as long as humanly possible. Uh-huh. So, so, so those, those, are, those, are, those are small granular details that sometimes you don't get, but both are, are necessary because in the telling of the story, even in a lot of the other things developed, some of the animations on the website, you'll see, I forget which one it was, but there was one of the active websites that uh, Sam and those guys did a version of it where he would sit down and you could go to the different things and he was sitting down at a what looked like a computer and you pull up the different screens and that would take you to the different pages on the website. Mm-hmm. And who knew that would be very similar to the work environments we see today, workstations, smaller spaces, 
screens in front of you. you know, all these things are precursors, and they're, they're real important as facts because these are things that he approved in his lifetime that kind of set the stage for where things ended up being. So it's real important that we look at them not only close as what they are, but far away to see what they represent as far as a visionary. All right. You know, because it, you know, all of it, all of it counts. Let, let me also, I hope that answers your question. I, I didn't mean to go so far out. You, but, yeah. you did great. <laughs> One thing, too, I look at with Prince, and as an early adopter, obviously, but he was also not afraid to, I don't know if shut the door would be the right term, but he was not afraid to, like, you know, yo, this ain't, you know, as he famously said, the internet is dead, or, you know, I'm paraphrasing, or the things of, uh, you know, I always look at this. He utilized technology, but I don't. I get a sense that he was not a slave to it, right? Like, and I wanted to ask Sam. You know, was uh, I, I want to say tech savvy, but did you notice Prince using the computers a lot? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right that he was not a slave to the technology. That's kind of what I was going back to before, where his vision and his music, you know, that that's what drove him. Computers and all that, those, those were hammers, those were screwdrivers, those were tools to get where he wanted to go. They weren't going to tell him what to do. Um, but as far as, like, computers go, I mean, we're, you know, I think one of the main things that he really enjoyed, uh, and, and Neil's talked about this as well, is, you know, being able to go online is somewhat anonymous and being able to interact with fans in a way that was just impossible for superstar rock musician Prince to do. So he could go into an AOL chat room and he could talk with fans and he could, he could tease things or he could just listen to what they had to say or just interact with them. And I think for someone like him, that was uh, immensely valuable and, and a great experience for him. And I know that he really, <clears throat> he really latched on to using AOL at that time to have chats and, you know, back in the left one of the days, like almost all our communication was through AOL chats and through emails. And I think he just really enjoyed that form of communication. So that I think that was an example of him kind of latching onto a technology because it made what he wanted to do easier and made what he wanted to do, like achieve the goals that he was looking for. So um, I think that that's always what drove him. Um, but as far as like being up on the latest thing or, um, hey, have you have you heard about this? Whatever. It wasn't necessarily about that. I feel like it was always, you know, the music and the goal was first, and then it was figure out how to do it later. Well, one of the things, this is Jayantic, and the, on the heels of that, Sam, and this is further out from the AOL days, but I was so thrilled. You know, we all um, had the moments where you're trying to get into the after show or you're trying to figure out where the show is going to be. And before we really had... AOL and Twitter and some of the tools that helped us connect, you know, quicker, a little bit more quickly, it was word of mouth or you're making a phone call. Cause I remember back in the nineties, I was calling my boy trying to figure out which club Prince is going to be at after the show. But uh, what I'm getting at is Prince's use of Twitter, particularly in 2014, when they did the hit and run shows in London, I really loved the approach of when he had the account that either was third eye girl or maybe it was Prince himself um, on that account. But, they were basically letting you know when the show was going to happen. Then you basically had to show up. And I happened to be in London when a lot of those shows are happening. And literally, you had to drop everything and run to King's Cross, drop everything and go to Cup Coco. Um, it was a lot of fun. And I really, you know, later on beyond the AOL stuff, I think Prince and, and that whole 
you know, all the people sort of assisting with that really were onto something and the use of Twitter and sort of doing the shows and the way that he was doing them toward the end. Yeah, and it was also even starting to do some live streaming type stuff of rehearsals. You would you would kind of see that pop up uh, and things, which I thought was amazing. Uh, but I'm curious, I don't know if you were at Twitter at that time, Jay, but I'm curious, how aware are these platforms that, you know, when artists do come on there and use these things? Is that something internally that you guys uh, pay attention to? Yeah, I, you know what, the thing, yes, to answer the question, it is definitely paid attention to because I think not only does Twitter use its, you know, put itself out there in interesting ways, I think brands, artists, individuals have used social media, Twitter in particular, in really sort of um, unique ways. So, you know, when you see someone like Prince use his fan base to market a show in a very unconventional way, last minute and actually draw as much attendance as most in most instances sell out crowds and literally moments without having to get on the radio without having to do the conventional things it definitely is an awareness of just the power of of you know of of a twitter or or social media platform so you know i think it's he did it in a really unique way to himself and then what ends up happening is people try to replicate it. It doesn't feel as authentic or it doesn't work out quite as well. Um, but there's definitely an awareness. It's interesting too. Um, you know, looking, looking at how he embraced Twitter towards the end of his career. Uh, you know, when I was around towards the end of 2008, it was right sort of at the dawn of social media taking over. And I remember at that time he had kind of a very negative opinion about social media. And I think that was partially influenced by the Jehovah's Witnesses because at the time they were very against it as well. Um, and he definitely didn't want to be on Twitter. He didn't want to be on MySpace, didn't want to do any of that. Um, so I thought it was really great that, you know, later on he kind of came around and saw it as a, as a good tool because his post always reminded me of the exact same thing I would be posting on our website, you know, in our news section. You know, uh, people would refresh that latest news section all the time to see if, like, he posted something new. It was always something like, oh, we're going to release this album next May or the tour is going to start. You know, that's these little messages that he would always put out on the website. And then, then he started doing it directly on Twitter. And I think it was another example of him, you know, using the Internet as a communication tool, except this time just going directly himself and not needing somebody, an intermediary like myself on the website. So it was really great to see him do that. And, and Dave, I wanted to ask you, in terms of some of the technical aspects at Paisley Park, was there uh, uh, the awareness to keep a certain level of, of technology? And what I mean by that is, you know, did you always have to have the, the newest stuff? You know, was it all Pro Tools? I know you mentioned analog with two-inch tape or things. But was there, like, you know, automation-type things set up? Or was it literally, like, I, I'm used to using you know, quantity tape or whatever it is, this is how we're going to do it, regardless of how everyone's doing it on hard drives or something. Yeah, well, in 2003, when I came, my, his main mandate to me was to return the facility to working order because he wanted to come back home and record. He was tired of going to other cities and being having to be for there for extended periods of time, and he wanted just to be in Minnesota and create at home. So part of that was also not only to fix it, but to bring it up to date with the, the latest things that he would be comfortable with. Now, that being said, 
his, his, he was comfortable with analog, so that was, you know, the first thing we did. But we examined some of the newer production tools of those, those times that were being used. The ones that he liked, we included. The ones that he didn't really feel like it, it was a game changer for him, we didn't necessarily include. Um, we did eventually switch to, to the fully to Pro Tools because at the time I had purchased up most of the two-inch tape in the country, and I had drained most of the major cities anytime tape was on sale, and 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 then the manufacturer at that time had gone out of business. So you know, they're they're in the problem lies that he liked the process that. He he had been involved in all these years of documenting his recordings and doing what he does, but we were running out, so we had to implement the newer thing. Um, and amongst the other things too, we, we you know we we had discussed and had actively talked about um, the educational market and doing some specific things with colleges in respect to being able to have um, remote from Paisley Park, you know, typically the challenge with Paisley was that everyone was always in fear that he would come through and say, okay, get out, I want to do something, get out, get out, get out, right? And so everybody would run for the hills and go, oh, he's chased us all out. And uh, I said, well, you know, it, it's a different time, and if we're going to tell part of this story, why don't we look at doing it a different way and just have, have the studios available at least control rooms or the live rooms so we could do some direct things with colleges and so that they could have access and they could tell the musical story at at a place with controllable so it wouldn't necessarily have a bunch of people in there where they have to be in fear of oh we got to get out but it would be a relationship that made sense so we were trying to implement things that would help that eventual evolution of that place into a uh, a music space and, and, and the museum, you know, like we see the museum try and do now, you know, there, there were many other versions of things that we were working on to try and, and give people access to the experience, you know. Um, as far as state-of-the-art, we, we were as state-of-the-art as we needed to be. We did not uh, have ISDN and any of those things, and, and uh, everything was in-house, self-contained, and we only, I usually only went online with the computers to update versions of software, and then immediately after doing that, all the studio computers would, would not be constantly plugged into the Internet. As you walk in many studios today, and they're constantly, the main studio computer is still plugged into the Internet at all times. I would never do that. It was always a closed closed data situation in each uh, studio. Interesting. Um, wanted to talk about the, the future um, and your guys' ideas of things. You know, again, I, I want to be very, uh, I'm cognizant of who I am talking to <laughs> as I ask this question, but in terms of the estate and things that can be done with Prince's legacy and his music and art and things of that nature, like for some reason, I, you know, I, I was, I think it was uh, one of my team members, Kinesa, she did a whole thing about VR and she did a demonstration of watching some Prince concerts in a VR environment. It was pretty interesting. But I'm curious, like, what are some of the things 
that you guys could see uh, being implemented or ideas or suggestions? I'm going to start with Amy. Amy, you know, from your background in terms of the Prince legacy, what's something that you would like to see done uh, with, you know, with, with the Prince music and, and all that stuff? Okay. Um, well, two things. And actually, one, you just mentioned um, Kanisa, and I was thinking about, uh, it, it was a podcast, I think, at the end of June, right after the Sony deal was announced. And um, I think it was her who, who was saying about the importance of, of having um, the, the context, um, you know, whether, whether it accompanies, you know, future box sets or, you know, distribution, digital distribution of, of music online. Um, and I think, you know, uh, Sam also um, and Dave also alluded to this too about having not just the, you know, like I, I mentioned about the, the computers, but also the, the detail from those that were there, um, you know, the, the modality of recording, you know, on the analog tapes and having all of that um, information available for those that experience Prince in the future to have that full context. Because I think that there is certainly something to be said to enjoy Prince's music for enjoyment's sake, right? But then when you you have that, I don't know, maybe this is the academic in me talking, but when you have that complete context and you know, you know, what, what was going on at that point in history or, or um, I don't know, you know, uh, I, I think um, can be really important. So I'd love to see that, you know, that that um, the estate will have all of the voices, not only the fan community, but the sound engineers and the other musicians, you know, from every era um, involved, you know, in your distribution. And then one other thing, um, and this isn't pertinent uh, specifically to distribution of music, but in terms of you know, Prince and his use of technology, others have spoken on this and how he used it as a way to communicate with fans. And I think that one of the things that, I don't know, has been truly um, great to see, for me anyway, um, in the last couple of years is just the, um, I don't know, the, the, the how the fan community has gotten together to inspire new projects to carry on um, Prince's legacy. You know, you had the podcast last week about the Academy of Prince. You know, there are schools being built in his name. There are all of these things, and I'd love to see more of that. Um, yeah. All right. Mr. Jenkins. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything Amy said. And, you know, a, a little bit of my mind goes towards you know, obviously want to get as much music as possible. I'm really glad the, the anthology is out now. Michael, you had said something on the podcast many, many, many podcasts ago that you would love to, your Ultimate Prince album from The Vault would be a collection of material of the demos that Prince did for other artists. Mm. Like like that, <laughs> that to me would be one of the ultimate things alongside all the things we're discussing as a means to understand Prince's creative influence on some of the things that we heard other artists do along the way. Um, I, I also really like that I saw Black Klansmen, and of course we all know that Proud Mary was at the end of that. I really also like, I like the use of that song and that movie contextually, 
And I hope the estate continues to let music like that show up in films and actually have meaning, purpose, and build toward the idea that I think Prince was about, which was about, you know, bringing people together. And I, I feel that if we can continue to get music in front of brands in that way, not just the little red Corvettes or the sort of a lot of the mainstream music, but again, in ways to continue to shape how we look and inspire and inform, you know, how we push ourselves into the future. I think that would be amazing. And ultimately, I will say that Prince's music, and maybe for a lot of us, has been a bit of a soundtrack for our journey and inspired us to do things in ways that we never thought we might because we're approaching things with, with our own personal voice, our own personal vision. And I really hope that the music that continues to come out, be it, you know, having the backdrop of people talking about what was happening in the studio the way Susanna Rogers has I just want to, it would be my hope that we continue to get a body of work that continues to inspire us to keep pushing things forward, be it the academies or this, that, and the other thing. But um, I'm, I'm actually really excited for what's happened over the last, I guess, six months with the music and the estate than the first <laughs> year and a half, because it, it felt a little bit like we didn't know what was going to happen, but it seems to be taking shape now. All right. Sam, any thoughts? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of a sense now with uh, Troy Carter that there's a larger plan in place, and that they're going to be taking going to be taking more of a curated route as far as releases go. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't spoke to him. I don't know what what their plan is, but um, it seems that so far it's it's going pretty well. I you know, for me, you know, I'm always trying to draw attention to what he did beyond just you know the top 10 greatest guitar solos and stuff like that because I feel like there's a lot of people that can speak to that but you know the things like his use of technology and the website and all the stuff that we did do um, you know can kind of easily be forgotten and it's definitely part of his larger story so I like I would like to see more stories like that you know be included in the narrative not just uh, you know here's five different versions of Kiss and stuff like that and I think as as far as the museum goes, there's an opportunity there to kind of take it to the next level. And I don't know what Graceland's plans are for it, but it would be nice if they could weave in more of a, more of that story into the experience. So it's not just, here's something he wore 20 years ago, but it's more like, you know, video interviews of people who actually sat in those chairs and pe- the people who made those costumes and just what he was thinking. Because, you know, in the, in the past two years, I met a lot of these people that had gone through Paisley Park, there's been a million of them, and you know, they all have very interesting perspectives on what was going on. And, you know, just remembering that and remembering that this was this was an artist that was uh, very different. He wasn't just somebody who made a record every four years and then sat by a pool. Like, he was somebody who lived and breathed music and, and did a lot. And he was always thinking about stage shows and, and technology and, um, and, you know, just the how he was going to evolve as a musician all the time. And I think... That story should be get should be gotten out there, not just for the hardcore fans, but for the casual listeners as well. And I hope that uh, it it keeps going down that road. Sam, can I ask a quick question? This is Jim. Mm-hmm. Would could there be a possible avenue for releasing some of those old websites to put them back into the put them back online? Because that <laughs> alongside what you're talking about would be so so cool. Well, well <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. Um, if you go to uh, PrinceOnlineMuseum.com, um, that's actually what we did. I got together with a lot of the former webmasters 
that worked with Prince over the years uh, who did other versions of sites. And, you know, I, I said to them immediately after his death, it's like, this is, this was our contribution to his story and no one's really talking about it. So why don't we take those sites? I, I have all my files. They have all their files. Why don't we put them back online? You know, we'll take out the music. We'll take out the, the retail, all any kind of commerce, but we'll put them up there as an online archive, a, a preservation of what he did. So the people can go back, they can reminisce, they can look back at, this is what was going on in 1999. This is what was going on in 2003, and really get a sense of um, of his history, of his timeline, of using websites as a tool. Um, the estate, you know, they they've kind of had a hot, cold relationship with with the site. I mean, obviously, there's licensing issues, and they have, you know, they have ownership claim over a lot of that material. So. Ideally, I think the goal would be to work out a deal that the estate would then absorb this into their larger catalog. But for now, it's just running as an independent site that uh, is really just there just for people to experience and check out. And and I set you up on that one, Sam, just so we can get it out there. <laughs> well, all right. Thank you very much. <laughs> and that, that makes me ask another question, though, in terms of, uh, you know, I don't know if it's fair use or you know, getting certain things like that out there. And, you know, to be fair, I think it was no different when Prince was here, you know, it was, you know, that, that got to come down or right, right. this and that and the third. But now that he is not here and there is all of the stuff that is out there, what do you guys think these things are going to fall? Because as we move forward, the Internet is still somewhat of a free form. There are things being put in place you know, I, I think of YouTube where, you know, a lot of stuff gets snatched or, you know, uh, things behind the scenes that get pulled and certain things are going to this other person and content pulled down and stuff of that nature. Where, where do we go forward? What are you guys' ideas of, you know, fans? Obviously, fans have been putting up clips. There's been some cases where, you know, they go to court, some cases where they don't and all of this stuff and I guess my here's my question there is such a large uh, artist driven community within the Prince community some very fine folks are doing a lot of interesting work and they want to put it out there for their love of Prince and to show you know how much it meant to them but you know we deal with okay this they got to come down or I'm, I'm curious what are you guys' thoughts on that I want to start with you Sam being that I think your early work is, is, is sort of like that, where it's like, well, you were doing this because you loved Prince. I remember those websites mm -hmm. and things, but I would see now, I could imagine now, a lot of that stuff would probably have to come down. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I think now, for me, I just kind of draw the line at, like, it, you know, looking at what people are doing, are they doing it to make a, make a dollar? Are they looking to exploit Prince for their profit? Um, or is it something they're doing out of the love of Prince? And I think you can get a sense when you look at what people are doing. Um, I know for me personally with the, with the online museum site, I definitely wanted to make it very clear that there wasn't any money being transacted. We were not even doing banner ad sales or Google sales or anything like that. You know, it was strictly put up there because we wanted that story to be heard. So it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis. So, you know, you, I, I've seen a ton of stuff come out in the past two years that's obviously very nasty and someone's just trying to make a fast buck off of prince um but then there's you know like you said there's plenty of other people who are doing great artwork inspired by him and i think that that's really cool and there should be a place for it 
even in terms of just like sharing, you know, um, I think was it that famous clip of the baby that was dancing or something, and there was like a Prince right. song in the background. And I believe there was something recently. It was at the current. They had some footage out in the street of like people right. celebrating. Prince. Yeah, the purple rain thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think, and I think they had to take that down, but I think they was allowed to go ahead and put that back up. So maybe there's a change of. Maybe they are looking yeah. at things case by case. Possibly. It's kind of tricky because I know for the website stuff, you know, it, it's we did all the work on it. We created it. You know, I could argue that the code belongs to us, but then there's using visuals of him and all these things. Even even with the mural that's in Paisley Park, there was a kind of a question of like, do do I have the rights to that or does Prince have the rights to that? Because it wasn't expressly written out like i never signed a contract with him i never signed anything with him expressly saying he owned everything i did so you know i told them of course you can have the rights to it you can do whatever you want with it it's in paisley park but at the same time you know because prince did a lot of handshake deals a lot of these things are kind of up kind of a question mark interesting interesting all right well we're gonna wrap things up here um are there anything that i may have missed that you guys wanted to uh, put out there as well in, in regards Just to this one thing so i mean in the subject of technology i was fortunate um to have gone to uh, the south by southwest show that samsung um you know put on and trap called quest open for prince and then prince perform but my friend who um, was a cmo at the time todd pendleton had invited me he knew i was a huge prince fan and you know it was one of like a number of shows that I've been to. And this was a special show like they all are or were. And after the, the set was over, my friend Todd says, um, hey, you want to go back and meet the man? And I, and I you know, when I lost my shit. And then um, I this up together. But this is the point. So, you know, the, the whole conver- the beginning of the conversation, it was, a, it was an amazing conversation. But one of the things Prince had mentioned was, really figuring out how to use the Samsung device as a digital distribution tool and to offset the things that were happening with iTunes because they were basically doing things in the 21st century that record companies were doing back in the day, which was giving these advances and, and not really you know, supporting musicians in the way that he felt they should be. And I really, you know, we didn't go super deep in on that, but I thought you know, that was an interesting thing that probably was a means for him to think about the future of distribution of his music. And of course, Third Eye Girl had a couple of things, Third Eye Tunes and things of that nature. But I just thought that was a really, it was it was a great moment for me personally, but I just think in the whole discussion around technology and prints and where things are going, and Dave and Sam, you may have more intimate knowledge of, of where his head was around this specifically. But I thought when he had said that at the time, I was really keen to to like really have wanted to know what he would have done with that. Actually, let me follow up on that if I can. Um, shortly before his passing, he had re- you know, regained all of his masters and trademarks and copyrights from Warner Brothers. You know, again, as Dave mentioned earlier, I, I was part of his legacy catalog here. Once he got that, were there plans to you know really make that accessible on digital platforms we know about the initial thing with title but was there any planning beyond that i would imagine you know regaining the control of all of his stuff was probably the 
I would imagine would have been the end goal. I guess where do you go with yeah, that? Yeah. Right. What a, one of one of the things that was discussed was re-recording some of the uh, original material. By re-recording it, what it allows you to do is uh, when the publishing request comes in, you now have your re-recorded master that you get 100% of rather than splitting something from the original. So that's a, that's a thing that a lot of artists do. All right, all right, Dave, you out there cooking up some grits or something. We don't know what's going on in the background. <laughs> no, 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 I have a, I have a, I, when, I'm, when I'm not doing music, I teach uh, kids tennis, and so we have a tennis event today. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's what's up. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this has been, you know, our four-way, four-A into uh, Prince School here on the, the podcast, and I hope I have, uh, you know, giving you something to think about definitely these people here i would say go check out everybody involved here uh follow them on their social media platforms i'm going to go around the room before we get out of here amy where can people find you online um so i am at on twitter at amy underscore carlton um and yeah you can find me there and i one last thing i want to say is i first of all it's been really an honor um getting to sort of be on the, the podcast today, especially with, with everyone involved. And um, I hope to get to, to speak to you again in the future. I, I shared with you, Michael, I'm hoping to get critical mass um, over at MIT. I would really like to, in the near future, um, host a Prince and Technology Symposium um, at MIT. So I'm working on that. And um, so I'll be reaching out to all of you in the near future. Love it. Love it. Mr. Sam Jennings. Okay. Michael Dean. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Dave. No, I just said, uh, Michael Dean, give her my number and tell her to give me a buzz. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. I'll do that. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Mr. Sam Jennings, where can they find you online, sir? Yeah, you can always find me at samjennings.com. All right. And I don't think I added, Sam, you are also uh, you are working, still working over there at uh, Ebony, Ebony Magazine? Yes, I'm working uh, at Ebony as part of the digital team, so doing a lot of web stuff for Ebony.com. Nice, nice. I love it. And Mr. Dave Hampton, where can they find you online, sir? Uh, you can reach me at uh, reptone.com, R-E-F-T-O-N-E. That's uh, where you can find all the products, uh, my speaker line and everything else. All right. And Jayanta Jenkins, sir, where can they find you online? Yes, uh, Twitter. I, at Jayanta, J-A-Y-A-N-T-A. So that's very simple. But yeah, that's that's where I am mostly. Love it. And also, man, uh, a salute to you. And how is the baby? The baby is amazing. So everyone, I have a five-month-old. Um, and my mother actually just flew in from Virginia. She's here this weekend. And it's, wow. it's, it is absolutely one of the most wonderful experiences that just keeps all the cliches about fatherhood are now my <laughs> cliches about fatherhood. <laughs> love it. I love it. Yes, man. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. <laughs> all right. Big Sexy and Sack, where can they find you? So can they find you on that website yet? <laughs> Still working on it. Okay. <laughs> I can be found on Twitter at WSE Mark and Facebook under Mark Wiggins. I'm no longer on Instagram. That thing has backfired on me twice. So, so bump that. Uh -oh. I'm off Instagram. You didn't, you didn't post the wrong pictures, did you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you can find us at podcastjuice.net and we're on uh, Twitter, yeah, yeah. Podcast Juice. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio. And if you can, please check out our Patreon page. But as I always say, work it like a job. We'll see you next time. Peace. Feels right. She told me not to worry, says not playing the games. The honest dog, she's trying to be insane.